Welcome to KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Monday, February 20th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, History Colorado is hosting an exhibit on the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which brought an end to the U.S. invasion of Mexico in the mid-1800s and redefined the borderlands between the two countries. And... CityCast Denver visits with the president of the NAACP of the Rocky Mountains to find out more about a case of black ranchers in El Paso County that has garnered national attention. After the BBC News headlines, we'll hear the latest commentary from Jim Hightower. Then it's good old CU with Joe Yuhas. At 9 a.m., we'll bring you Counterspin, a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. After that, Carrie Wolfson will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. That's all still ahead this morning, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Stacy Johnson. The group Save Open Space Denver, along with several individuals, filed a lawsuit Friday against Denver's proposed redevelopment of the Park Hill Golf Course. The plaintiffs claim a conservation easement prevents development on the former golf course along Colorado Boulevard and East 35th Avenue. They say the parcel's former owner granted the easement in order for Denver to maintain the property for recreational use and as a scenic and open parcel. Denver City Council in January voted 11-2 to refer a ballot question to the city's voters asking voters in the upcoming municipal election if the city should maintain the legal agreement that prevents a proposed development of the parcel. If voters agree to nix the conservation easement, developers could convert the parcel to include 3,200 new housing units, a grocery store, and other retail. Tenants at Cedar Run Apartments in southeast Denver protested Friday after months of what they called unlivable apartment conditions. Residents say for months they have lived without heat, hot water, with roof leaks, mold, cockroaches, and unanswered complaints from building management. After a fire in early December at one of the complex's buildings, tenants say they were not allowed to go back into their units after maintenance crews found asbestos. A Denver Health Department spokesperson told the Denver Post the agency has received about 12 complaints about the apartment complex since 2022. A spokesperson with the Denver Department of Excise and Licenses says they have no record of the complex obtaining a license under the city's new rental property ordinance. A spokesperson for the apartment community acknowledged tenant grievances to the Denver Post and cited a labor shortage and supply chain issues as impacting their ability to quickly make repairs. To help residents, attorneys with the nonprofit the Community Economic Defense Project say they will conduct a Know Your Rights workshop and clinic Saturday, February 25th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at 1035 Osage. Colorado officials announced that an insurance company has paid $245,000 for a major gasoline spill in the North St. Verain Creek. KGNU's Benita Lee has more. The settlement, mandated under the Federal Oil Pollution Act, will go towards resources needed to restore aquatic life and habitat. In April of 2021, a gasoline tanker truck rolled over on Highway 36 near Lyons, leading to environmental damages within a five-mile stretch downstream of the crash. MTY Trucking was responsible for the spill. That year, MTY Trucking's insurers paid over $80,000 worth of claims related to water quality damages that led to hundreds of dead trout. 
The company's insurer paid the latest settlement after Colorado officials conducted a year-long investigation to assess the impact to area wildlife. The insurers will pay an additional $18,000 to the federal government to address a similar claim. Colorado Natural Resources officials will consult with the Town of Lyons and other community groups to identify and earmark funding for restoration projects. For KGNU, I'm Benita Lee. The Boulder County District Attorney's Office released a report last week that analyzes disparities between prosecution decisions for defendants of different races. The data included disposition, charge reduction, and incarceration for individuals identified as white, black, or Hispanic. The Colorado Evaluation and Action Lab at the University of Denver and the Center for Criminal Justice at Loyola, Chicago, produced the report. It examines the county district attorney's felony and misdemeanor cases between March 2020 and June 2022. The report found positive trends of low disparity for Blacks and Hispanics. However, Hispanic defendants received fewer charge reductions in plea bargaining and a higher rate of incarceration compared with Black or white defendants. Seven other district attorney offices in the state also took part in the project analysis. The report said the Boulder County results were consistent with other Colorado DA offices. The Fort Collins City Council will vote Tuesday on whether to contract Republic Services for trash removal. City officials chose Republic Services among two other companies for the city's trash hauler contract. According to the Fort Collins Coloradan, the contract will not be final until the city council votes on it twice and can change some elements of the contract. Under the five-year agreement, Republic can raise prices annually by 3%. The city expects Republic to begin services in September of next year. As part of the President's Day holiday today, most state and local government operations will be closed. According to a Boulder press release, the city will still operate recreational centers along with the Boulder Reservoir, the Flat Irons Golf Course Driving Range, the Belmont Bike Parks Asphalt Pump Track and Skate Park, and the city's trails and trailheads. For today's weather, the National Weather Service says skies will be mostly sunny for Boulder and Fort Collins and increasing clouds for Denver. Denver will have a high near 58 degrees. Boulder will reach 56 degrees and 55 degrees for Fort Collins. Winds will continue to be breezy today with gusts reaching as high as 45 miles per hour. Tonight will be mostly cloudy with a low of 31 for Denver, 34 for Boulder, and 27 degrees for Fort Collins. Winds will dial down a bit this evening but could reach as high as 36 miles per hour. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. This month marks the 175th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the war between the United States and Mexico. Under its terms, Mexico ceded 55% of its territory, including the present-day states of California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, most of Arizona and Colorado, as well as parts of Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, and Wyoming. History Colorado currently has the treaty on display in Denver as part of its Borderlands of Southern Colorado project. KGNU's Dave Ashton spoke with Don DePrince, History Colorado's executive director and the state historic preservation officer. 
the history of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is is not so far away from people's you know familial stories, their gene their genealogies. It is it is part of the consciousness in many ways. Um, you know, whether you're in Pueblo or the San Luis Valley or the lower Arkansas Valley. And so much of that is because of the impact that the treaty had on people's ability to own property, how people who maybe once this was their homeland suddenly feel like, uh, you know, foreigners in the place that they've always lived. It ushers in, of course, a loss of political power, which you can imagine with any sort of shift in political empire. But there's also segregation and discrimination. You know, it shifts the economic fabric of, of what people need to do to make a living. You know, it forces a lot of migration out of these uh, homelands in search of work, you know, some of what happens is it changes how people are able to stay on the land if they are able to. They have to pay taxes to the U.S. government. Um, so that requires a different kind of labor as well. And then, you know, part of the biggest legacy that happens in the aftermath of the treaty is that people are dispossessed of their land holdings. You know, they're changing property laws. And then, of course, there's also you know, prejudice and corruption. And this kind of, this is the sort of thing that can take place over a really long time. You know, there are moments in history where you have like a burst of something that happens all at once. It's very climatic. Um, but what you see with the dispossession of land following the treaty is um, almost this like very slow and painful annexation over people's lives. Don, I'd like to just get a little bit about how the treaty and your exhibition of it now um, fits in with your larger Borderlands of the South initiative. We have been working on our Borderlands of Southern Colorado initiative for a number of years. I want to say since 2017. And again, this has been a large collaboration, um, not just with History Colorado staff, but with numerous community members, as well as scholars in borderland uh, theory and borderland history from around the country. We first opened an exhibition on this uh, at our El Pueblo History Museum, and we are telling different pieces of this much larger story also at our Trinidad History Museum in Trinidad. Um, We have two exhibits there that relate to borderlands history. One is about... um, the impact to health and land with the with the changing borders, and the other is about the Santa Fe Trail. And then we also have an exhibition at our Fort Garland Museum related to this that is uh, examining indigenous captivity in southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. We will this summer be opening an exhibition as part of this series at Fort Garland as well on um, the Buffalo Soldiers. So much of this is examining all of the things that happen when you have a place of shifting empire, where you've got borders that rub up against each other. And I always like to say these, this initiative isn't about borders. It's about borderlands, which are very different in, in my mind. It's really about how people, uh, 
you know, what are the impacts to people who live in these spaces? And, and sometimes they are oppressive impacts and there's collision and clashing, but also there are beautiful things that happen, uh, hybridity, uh, cultural forms that don't exist anywhere else on the planet like they do in this space also come from this. You know, there's a, oppression and then there's just incredible resistance and resilience that also uh, come from it. And, and Borderlands has really just been a way of examining and understanding all of that. We also are very interested in understanding that borderlands and borders are geopolitical, but they also can be internalized. We hear from people all the time um, how they have internalized this kind of borderlands uh, notion. You know, many people maybe have Spanish blood and indigenous blood, and so they see that they are this embodiment of colonizer and colonized all at the same time. And so Borderlands isn't just about where they live, it's a formation of their identity as well. What is it about artifacts that can connect the past to the present? Why is it important for us to study such an artifact as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo on its own as a thing of history? I'm always asking myself this question. Um, You know, sometimes you know things intuitively, but you haven't intellectualized them yet. So as we brought this treaty in, I I really thought a lot about this because you can absolutely go to the National Archives website and read the entire treaty um, in digital form, but it it does not have the same effect. There is something uh, really powerful about encountering the real deal And so this is my latest theory, anyway, that I think what makes it so powerful is when you see the document, you you cannot ignore the humanity in it. You can see that these pages were handmade. There's like fibers and and you know that they're handmade. The script is so compelling. You can really see the humanness of both. So like on one column, there's one column in English. And that script is larger, and then the other column is in Spanish, and the script is smaller. So you can even see the differentiation of the humans who who wrote the document. On one of the pages, there is the like smudge, like an inky fingerprint um, that clearly one of the scribes left on the document. You've got these imperfect wax seals and signatures on the on the signature page, and. And you just cannot ignore that that humans made this. And there's something really compelling, I think, about that. You know, it reminds you, too, of the humans that are impacted by what happens with this treaty, that humans formed the terms that then put all of these lives into turmoil. And I think, you know, part of what is so compelling to me about history is that you can look at the ways in which humans have formed the past, and it reminds you that you too can forge a future, right? That you don't, you don't have to passively accept the ways in which the world currently exists. People in our past have certainly done transformational things, good or bad, but it's a reminder to us that we too have the power uh, to forge a new future.
Don DePrince, History Colorado's executive director, speaking with Dave Ashton about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is currently on display at History Colorado in Denver. It's not often that people outside of Colorado have reason to talk about the Eastern Plains, but a dispute over some ranch land just east of Colorado Springs has escalated into a full-blown viral moment, with allegations of a racist conspiracy and a black farming family facing felony charges. CityCast Denver producer Paul Caroli sits down with the president of the Rocky Mountain NAACP, Portia Prescott, to talk through the case, the changing shape of racism in rural Colorado, and the legislation she thinks would have ended this whole thing before it started. So there's multiple cases going on, lots of allegations. Um, I think maybe now we should catch people up if they aren't familiar with this story. Can you explain the backstory with the Mallorys and their ranch? Yeah, so the the Mallorys, uh, Courtney and Nicole Mallory, they came from Texas. They were victims of the hurricane that happened in Houston. And, and after all of that, decided, you know, what a great opportunity to come to Colorado. They acquired the land, Freedom Acres Ranch, August of 2017. And we're hoping to come here and, you know, have a thriving farm and, and reignite the movement that the uh, black farmers are talking a lot about, about growing our own foods, owning our own land, um, and helping children educate on healthy eating. Having said that, if we fast forward from August 2017 all the way up to 2023, they have been terrorized and victimized by a neighbor who um, has called very negative attention to them. They have had animals mutilated, the dog poisoned, cows killed. They've had a Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, everyone puts uh, signs up on their property. They've had it burned down. They've had the N-word spray painted on their property. And they have essentially, at this point in time, been completely terrorized by their neighbor, Teresa Clark. So some of this, some of the coverage that I've seen of this story has painted it as a conflict between neighbors over a property line, while other versions have really made this sound like the whole town of Yoder, including the sheriff's office, is part of this racist conspiracy to get rid of the Mallories. It's been really hard to figure out what's true, what's false, what's someone's perspective, what other people are bringing to this. Where do you think the truth really lies? What's your read of the situation? Having gotten this close and this involved and in, in looking at the El Paso County um, Sheriff's press release, having actually spoken to several people from El Paso County, including Commander Laurie, I can't say her last name, I feel like, number one, this is not at all a land dispute. Number two, this is a complete bullying, intimidation just a straight out assault attack on the character of the Mallory's. And this is definitely racially motivated and is essentially the county and the neighbor are seriously trying to force the Mallory's off of their land and get rid of them out of Colorado. It's just, they don't want them there. That has been evidently clear and they're trying to do everything in 
humanly possible to get rid of them. And now I feel like El Paso County Sheriff Gerhardt has been complicit in conspiring with the Clarks to help use the legal system and weaponize it against uh, Courtney and Nicole Mallory. And I 100% feel it's motivated because of race. Can you give me an example? How do you see that, specifically with the sheriff? The El Paso County Sheriff Department will constantly tell you they were involved in 170 response calls that quote unquote involved the Mallory's. They make it appear as if there were something aggressive that the Mallory's were constantly doing. Well, the Mallory's in the beginning were being harassed by their neighbor. Courtney Mallory filed and Nicole filed a restraining order against Teresa Clark. Teresa was arrested but none of the claims that the Mallory's indicated were deemed valid or true. This same Teresa Clark put restraining order against them. The Mallory's have done absolutely nothing which we typically constitute as someone needing a restraining order. This matter could have been handled a long time ago. Now we come back to while he's incarcerated, guess what happens? Bonnie Clark, the mother of Teresa Clark, mysteriously just had to stroll in and file a restraining order for fear of her life and add additional felony charges onto Courtney Mallory from from the previous charges from Teresa Clark. Why, if Bonnie was so afraid and so worried, why within the last five years would she have not already filed a restraining order? So how is it mysteriously the Sheriff Gerhardt, the same Sheriff Gerhardt who can't stand the Mallory's, is the sheriff taking the affidavit for Bonnie Clark in what, February of 2023? None other time five years prior, but simply to add additional charges to Courtney in hopes that they can get one of these felony charges to stick. Have you talked to the Mallory's much? Yes. How are they feeling? I think they were feeling overwhelmed, alone, isolated, victimized, terrorized, only beginning to feel some relief because a lot of us community leaders are here with them. And we've also helped them retain, or at least Courtney at this time, a very strong defense criminal attorney. So you are optimistic about justice. That was my next question. I mean, I've seen cases like this go through our justice system and get all twisted around. Tell me about what what justice would look like to you. Number one, that the felony five charges get dropped and that they're not convicted of any felony uh, activity because that would mean a felony five would mean that they would not be able to have firearms on their farms. And being a person who comes from a family of farmers, that's why my family came to Colorado. That's why a lot of black families come to Colorado is because there was a time where coming to Colorado was a special place where you could farm without being harassed by the KKK or the authorities. I have family that had to flee Kansas, Oklahoma, Alabama, because if you had a thriving farm, that meant the KKK were going to come and take your land. And the hopes was that Colorado was something different. I know you you lead the Rocky Mountain NAACP. You haven't dealt with a similar situation like this in the past? These things don't come up? Well, onto this magnitude, for when you look at the details of the county, no. 
And let me mind you, this is not an isolated situation. El Paso County over the last five years has had incident after incident after incident involving blacks and their sheriffs and their county. And they they have no answers for, for victims being brutalized. They have no answers for people coming out missing and the mysterious death that happened in the El Paso County Detention Center. So this is to me not an isolated incident. This is a problem that integrates the entire system or the entire administration with the El Paso County Sheriff's Department. And it would be my hopes that the new Sheriff Roybal, if I'm saying his name correctly, would, number one, hire someone who does deals with community relations. And they begin to understand that as Denver becomes more expensive, Aurora becomes more expensive, many people of color are migrating to that section of the state in that county. And they need to understand, they need to catch up with times. Let's look to the future for a second. There's a bill that I wasn't familiar with. It's called the Karen Act with a C, which um, would make racially biased calls to 911 illegal. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. If you've looked across the country, and I want to say this correctly, because the only safety for blacks in America that we can have when it comes to law enforcement is no contact with law enforcement. So every data study shows the less contact that blacks have with law enforcement, the less worry that we have to be, you know, but where we're being victimized, terrorized, beaten, all the things that you typically see with the George Floyd case, which you see with the Tyrone Nichols case. As long as we don't have contact with the police, we're good. Right. The Karen Act, it's caution against racially exploitive non-emergencies because uh, Karen and I don't want to use that in anyone's names, because I know some amazing women named Karen. But traditionally, in the history of America, going all the way back to Emmett Till, when a white woman cries out to the police, she is automatically believed, and the Black person is is not, their, their word means nothing. So going back all the way to the Emmett Tills, if we don't have to worry about a white woman just being able to call out the police because because she feels threatened or whatever for no apparent reason, the person is absolutely doing nothing, then there should be some accountability that that she comes, that that person who does that to another black person, the minute she calls the police like that, she's jeopardized their life, their life. And that's what white women don't understand. When you falsely call out the police on a black person, you have literally just put their life in danger. And there has to be repercussions for that. You have to not be able to just call the, the police because you're you're white and you want to. Portia Prescott, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Paul. That's all for today's Morning Magazine. Special thanks to Stacey Johnson, Benita Lee, Alexis Kenyon, Dave Ashton, and CityCast Denver for their contributions to today's program. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. Stay tuned for a commentary from Jim Hightower, and then it's Good Old See You with Joe Uhas. That's coming up after the news headlines from the BBC.